My name is Eric Hundley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Today, we're joined by Ian Haworth of the Cult Information Center, and that's RE, because he's in England. How are you doing today, Ian? Great, thank you. Good to uh, meet you in this way, uh, Eric. Good to meet you, and you're really a pretty difficult guy to um, find. I wanted to get a hold of you, though, because you were on a video on YouTube where you were verifying the veracity of different movies and whether they were legitimate to the cult experience or not. That's right, I was. Um, that was uh, very early this year before COVID-19 uh, hit. And uh, I was very ill at the time, but still wanted to do it and thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, it's great. It was a, a really neat feature. And of course, my ears you know, perked up because on this channel, I like to study human behavior. And that's everything from widespread marketing and that'd be on the macro to the very, very micro or even macro cult, because I think it's on a spectrum. I might be weird, but I think that sales and cult leadership are on the same side of things. Okay. <laughs> um, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, they're both involving persuasion and influence over others, I guess is the way I would put it. Well, the main focus for our organization as an educational charity is to talk about and write about issues related to psychological coercion. Uh, we have um, what I hope is a fairly clear definition of what a cult is, and it, um, uh, it's made up of five characteristics. But by far the most important characteristic is that a cult, as far as we're concerned, is a group that uses techniques of psychological coercion to recruit, indoctrinate and retain members. Now, these techniques are sometimes referred to as brainwashing techniques. Um, they're sometimes referred to as mind control techniques and more recently, radicalization techniques, because we believe they're much the same as the techniques used to recruit someone into terrorism. Okay. Now, ironically, I, I was in the military and we went through basic indoctrination training. And I would argue that that is using these techniques. Now, they're, it's doing it for the government, but there are a lot of parallels in there. Would you agree? A lot of people want to draw those parallels, and I can understand why. Um, I wrote a book um, in 2001 mm -hmm. called Cults, a, a Practical Guide. And um, in there, we show differences between being in the army or uh, the, the mm. forces in general and um, in a cult. And I think there are significant differences. Um, uh, obviously, when you're involved in um, representing your country and the forces, you've got to be in a situation where they can rely on you. And uh, when they say jump, you jump. Right. And, and certainly, um, uh, there's a need to conform to the wishes of the army. But you know that ahead of time. And you can check it out ahead of time. And they're going to pay you for your time and trouble. And they're going to look after you if you're hurt. Mm -hmm. um, these things don't apply in a, a cult situation. Uh, in terms of the looking after you, being able to check it out ahead of time, and so on and so forth. So there are lots of uh, major differences as far as I'm concerned. Okay, well, I, I guess that I stated it wrong. I wasn't saying the military is a cult. I was saying that there are techniques that are used to indoctrinate people into losing the individuality 
um, at least to a degree. So you're part of a unit in the military. Now, the military is very different. You don't have one supreme leader, so to speak, unless you're in North Korea. And I would argue that is a cult, by the way. But here, I meant in just the techniques. Obviously, in the military, there's a chain of command. You have multiple people who you're reporting to. There is oversight. There's other structures. There's law that's actually built into it with UCMJ. Not only that, you have um, civilian law where courts can actually override military sometimes, depending. So in a cult, I... I'm sure you would agree that there really is only one source of power, an individual or a core group, and yep. they're absolute authorities. Yep, yep. Absolutely. Um, in a cult environment, people are subjected to trance-inducing techniques. The use of hypnosis is very, very common. Hmm. Um, and that would be something that would separate it right away from uh, what happens in the military. In, in a cult environment, you cannot trust the people around you. Your peers are not people to be trusted because they're working against you. They're other members of the group. Whereas I think you would agree that your peers in the military are going to be on side. Oh, yeah. and, and if you've got a senior officer that is a bit of a pain in the neck, well, you'll all agree on that and um, uh, deal with the issue together. Uh, in a cult, you're alone. You're being worked on constantly by the group and each individual member that's already controlled in it. Okay, and, and that definitely makes sense. Now, you mentioned um, hypnosis. How is that typically applied? Is it um, through drugs or like a, a meditation type of thing? What is um, what is some of the methodology for that? Well, it's great that you, you use meditation as an example because I'm an ex-cult member and that's exactly what was used uh, as a front for hypnosis in the particular cult that recruited me. We were told we were going to learn how to meditate without anybody defining what meditation meant. And it can mean a whole host of different things. Mm -hmm. uh, some things uh, may well be very helpful, beneficial to you, to maybe uh, your... your um, uh, your place of work, or whatever it might be. And there are other things that will just be trance-inducing and put you into a state of mind where you're highly vulnerable to suggestion. And in the cult I was in, we were told we were going to learn to meditate. We were going to um, listen to someone talking to us about the colors of the rainbow. We had to sit with our eyes closed. And this person spoke in highs and lows in a very rhythmical wave-like very soothing fashion. And in no time at all, going from red to orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, uh, we were in a deep trance state. And apparently, um, this is another version of what um, is often described as a countdown hypnotic procedure. But instead of using numbers to count someone into a trance, they use colors instead. You can use anything that's in, in sequence. You can use parts of the body, you know, something like that that people are familiar with. And as they were talking about each color, they would repeat things over and over um, that um, would, would uh, suggest that you're relaxing, that you're feeling sleepy, that um, um, everything is fine, and so on and so forth. And you're being lulled into a false sense of security. And by the time they get to indigo or violet or sooner, 
uh, you're in a deep trance state and it doesn't feel bad it feels actually quite good hmm. and uh, that brings up another issue doesn't it about feeling good versus whether it is a, a good situation to be in uh, just because something feels good it's not necessarily good for you and perhaps a drug parallel might be um, good there so okay. hypnosis was introduced in that way in the cult I was in and we were hypnotized 16 times in a four-day course without even knowing it once and at the end of the course they could just say think of a rainbow and we're all in a deep trance state wow and I'm wondering if they were using NLP or neuro-linguistic programming as as, on route to yeah it. It, it it is used by some groups it's uh, it's quite right to, to mention that I'm, I'm not aware that it was used in the group I was in um what we argue is that to bring about psychological coercion resulting in control of a person, which normally takes three or four days and no more in the average mm -hmm. cult for the average person, um, there is a list of 26 techniques that can be employed. Hypnosis is just one of them. Another one is, is group pressure. Then there's love bombing. It's a false sense of love. Um, mm. that love is expressed as long as you told the party line. The moment you don't, the love is turned off. It may well be turned to threats, uh, to, to hatred. Or, is or that whatever. useful recruiting too? Um, the love bombing, like, um... Oh, absolutely. That. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly. Um, and, and so this list of techniques, uh, goes on and people are being broken down systematically right from the word go. And, um, uh, it, in my case, uh, the course I went on, I described as a four-day course. It wasn't four full days, though. It was just Thursday evening, Friday evening, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. It took place in a, a motel in Toronto. And um, by Saturday midday, so after just two evenings and one morning, I was theirs. And I was 31 at the time. Wow. Uh, I was a businessman. And... Um, they just had me lock, stock and barrel. And so the day after I gave them all the money I had, told them that I was dedicating my life to the group and went to work the next day and resigned from my job. Can we go back? Um, I, I would love to go through the whole you know, story. Like, how were you recruited? How did they find you? Did you just meet somebody or what? Yeah, it was just that. Um, I was doing some shopping one day in Toronto on the main... Uh, the main road, Young Street, as it's called. And I was approached by a very attractive lady. She was very attractive. I was very single, so I wasn't at all upset. And she had a clipboard and a chart and a pen and appeared to be doing some kind of a survey. And um, she, uh, she came up to me and she said, uh, oh, excuse me, sir, uh, could you help me with this survey? And I said, yes, please. <laughs> and she was so nice. And... Um, she only asked about six questions, and uh, so I gave six quick answers. It was usually a yes or a no. And at the end of it, she said, you know, the way you've answered these questions, I think you'd be interested in this community group that I belong to. Well, I wasn't. Um, I wasn't one for getting involved in, in groups. And she hadn't told me anything about it anyway. And she could see she was losing me. And she said, isn't it time you gave something back to your community instead of taking all the time, like most people do? And she made me feel rather guilty and selfish. And I was selfish. And I thought, mm, Toronto has been rather good to me. Maybe I should be giving something back. So I said, um, 
uh, okay, tell me all. She said, why don't you come along to a meeting? It's going to be in the XYZ Hotel downtown um, next week, Wednesday evening, 7.30. I'll see you there. Hmm. And she took my name and phone number so she could confirm the details later, and she did for me once or twice. And I went to this meeting, and there she was greeting me and uh, various other people. How many people? The meeting, uh, about a hundred. She said ahead of time there'd be about a hundred, and so that was true. There were, and um, the meeting consisted of a talk followed by a, um, a coffee break, and f- that was in turn followed by a short film. And I thought the talk would clarify the aims and objectives of this group, but it didn't. The speaker was a woman in probably her early 30s, and she talked about herself. She talked about how she'd done well academically. She had a doctorate, and she had a responsible position in society, supposedly, but how she'd become an alcoholic. And I wondered why she was telling us this. Anyway, she said that she struggled with her alcohol problems, but uh, um, in, in, in doing so, uh, when she finally stopped she she became a drug addict and i thought where on earth is this going her life was going from bad to worse and i don't believe she ever was an alcoholic or a drug addict but i can't prove it over there either way i think she was just telling us the story to make it sound good to try and convince us that this organization that she was representing was doing great work anyway she said her life came together and had purpose and meaning she got rid of her drug related uh, and other problems when she got involved uh, in this group, which was called PSI, Mind Development Institute Limited. And that was the first time I'd heard the name of the group, and I'd never heard of it before, so no alarm bells began to ring. But I was getting bored to tears with the whole affair because I wasn't an alcoholic and I wasn't a drug addict and I didn't intend to be, and I thought I'll be polite and wait until the break, and then that's the last they'll see of me. But unfortunately, when the break came along, people started to walk into this ballroom in the motel, uh, sorry, in the hotel. And um, they had food, they had drinks, and uh, this was all free. Now, I paid $2 to go in. That was the equivalent at that time of about a, a pound. In was British it alcohol, money. by the way? Or just? No, there was no alcohol. Okay, I was just wondering. And... Um, I thought, well, the least I can do is to get my money's worth. And so in no time at all, I had a plate piled high with goodies and a drink. But I was a smoker, and you weren't allowed to smoke in the room. So mm. I, uh, I balanced the food and everything and went outside and lit up in the corridor. This was in the days when you could still smoke in corridors. Mm. And um, when I'd lit up the cigarette, another lady rushed over, and she was very pleasant as well. and. Um, she said, oh, we, we didn't know you smoked. And I thought I was bothering someone with the fumes. So I pulled out a cigarette and started to look for an ashtray. But she said, that's all right. You can smoke out here. Um, but have you ever thought of quitting? And I said, yes. Why? She said, oh, well, we have a course which will show you how to quit smoking. Mm. I said, really? Tell me more. She'd finally hit my area of interest because... About a month before this, my doctor said that smoking would probably kill me by the time I was 40. But I got nine years to go, so I wasn't exactly counting the days. But right. I had to take it seriously, and I wanted to quit. 
And uh, I'd looked around the marketplace in Toronto at the time and found that there was another course available where they charged $225 for a five-week program that they claimed had about 70% success. So I thought, I'll compare that with this. So I said, what is it you're offering? Uh, how much is it? She said, $225. I thought, well, it's exactly the same price as the other one. And despite being known for being rather cheap and very cautious with my money, the money didn't bother me because I knew if it would work, I'd save that money in six months through not smoking. So the money wasn't a problem. I then said, well, how long is the course? Assuming that would be the same as well, about five weeks maybe. And she said, four days. I said, four days? Well, what can you do in four days? What's your percentage of success? And she said, 95 to 100%. We can even guarantee that it will work in those four days or we'll give you your money back. Mm. So I thought, how on earth can I go wrong? This is obviously the place for me. And that's why I went on the course. That all happened um, in, in August, and the course started in September, and I, I went on the course in September. And I resigned from my job, as um, I, I've said already, um, at the end of the course, but I had to serve a month's notice in the job I was in. And while mm. I was serving my notice in October, of that year, it was 1978, uh, the group was exposed in the media and uh, uh, as a group to stay away from, a group that may well be described as a cult, mm. a group that was creating very serious problems. And there was an interview with um, another Englishman, actually, who was a television producer, and he just escaped from it, so he was blowing the whistle. And I hadn't been programmed at that stage against the media. Most cults program you against the media very quickly. They, they mm. hadn't done that with me at this point. And when they a neighbor gave a me the... To? Sorry? They, they hadn't had a chance to yet, or...? I think that the group was having an easy time of things, and the leader was a little bit sloppy, to put it mildly. I think it was just down to that. And anyway... When a neighbor gave me the newspaper expose, it was front page and then more information inside, I read it. And when I read it, my brain started to work again. My critical mind, if you like, was reactivated and I started asking questions for the first time. I was shocked. And in the end, I... The questions. I sorry? Who did you ask the questions of? Did you uh, go to the well, cult and ask the, or the organization? That, asked, that would, or? Yeah, that was my, my initial response to, uh, to, to try and speak to the, the cult leader. Mm -hmm. And I phoned some of the members and uh, asked where Joe, that was the name of the leader, was. And they said, oh, uh, he's, it's a special um, birthday party for him. It's a surprise party at so-and-so location. So I thought, right, fine. And I went to that location. And he had a second in command who was on the door. And um, he was a professor of physics and um, a rather stout fellow as well. <laughs> and um, he could see I was, I was really shaken when I turned up and I was waving this newspaper article around. And I was saying, what's all this about, you know? And... He told me to go away. We're having a good time here. Go away. Um, and uh, we'll talk to you, you know, when you've calmed down. 
Now, this group was supposed to be all about love, peace and brotherhood, and it's pushing me away in my hour of need. So that said a lot, too. It just confirmed more of what I'd read in the article. And then he made an anti-Semitic comment about the journalist who'd written the article. Mm. So that didn't go down very well with me either. So anyway, I went back to my apartment and I actually phoned the journalist. And he was a really nice guy, a guy called Sidney Katz, one of the most famous journalists at the time in, in Canada. I didn't know that, but he was. Mm. And um, we talked about a lot of issues. He didn't even ask me my name, so he wasn't getting much of a story out of it. He just wanted to help. And at the end of it, I said, it sounds, Sydney, like there's a lot more information that I don't know about. He said, yes, my boy, it's all here at my office. If you ever mm-hmm. want to read it, come on down. Mm. And I said, when? He said, <laughs> whenever. And so I said, now? He said, now is good. <laughs> And I jumped on the the tube and went down to his offices and he gave me coffee and tea and whatever, gave me his office. And he went and sat in a a typing pool area as it was in those days. And um, he couldn't have been nicer. And he gave me so much information. I just could not believe what had been going on over the years that wasn't in the article and I'd never come across before. So finally, after about an hour, I came out. I said, but Sydney, this is far worse. And you said in the article, and that was bad enough. Mm. He said, yes, my boy. He said, that's lawyers for you. And that was the beginning of a good friendship with that journalist. And uh, uh, he was very, very helpful indeed. And that's how I managed to make the break. But it took me 11 months to fully recover from the damage done in two and a half weeks. Wow. I was just thinking, have you ever heard of um, the cognitive bias, the backfire effect? No. What that is, is if you have somebody that really firmly believes in something or they're just locked into a particular belief, the more you push at that, the more they double down. So you can actually have a negative effect. Like the more you push against their belief, the harder they're going to buy into it. Kind of like, do you remember the days when you were smoking and people would be like, you need to quit that. You need to quit that. And I know I went through this where I was like, you know what? Every time you say that, you're aggravating me. The aggravation makes me want to have another cigarette. So every time you tell me you're causing the problem, so shut up. Um, That kind of is the backfire effect on, let's say, a particular political belief or religion or or whatever. What you're describing with Sidney Katz is it sounds like he was just very open with you. You asked questions. He didn't push any beliefs or values on you. And ironically maybe having the article not go as in depth made it even more accessible have you found that when you're dealing with people who are trying to break away that's an interesting perspective i honestly believe that what reactivated my critical mind was just reading the critical information in his article there was sufficient there because I'd been programmed to understand this group was all about peace and love and brotherhood. It was there to help mankind. Now he's saying, no, it's not. Someone's just finished up in psychiatric care. Other people have in the past. It's a money-making concern or scam, uh, words to that effect. Um, And it was was just shocking to read. And um, I knew that 
uh, from a business studies background, you couldn't say all of those things in an article in a major publication like the Toronto Star, which is a national paper, as you probably know, mm -hmm. um, unless you could back it up in court. And uh, uh, so that's what did it for me, really. It was just that I was, I was faced with reality for the first time. What Sydney did afterwards certainly didn't make things worse. And, and so um, um, uh, uh, he had a degree in psychology as well, which probably helped. Mm. Uh, he knew how to, to deal with people. He was a nice guy, though. And, uh, but I was already uh, switched on and asking all kinds of questions. Um, and um, didn't know, though, that I was going to face 11 months of nightmare withdrawal symptoms. And today they're often equated with post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, right. Typical symptoms include hallucinations, delusions, insomnia, amnesia, violent emotional outbursts, suicidal tendencies, tendencies abnormal weight gain or loss. It can go either way. It's not a nice time. And going through that was really awful. Uh, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. But one of the things I say to ex-cult members when they, they call through to our charity is if you're going through this and this and this and this and this and this, and they say, yeah, that's me. Well, that means you're normal. And <laughs> that's good news for them. Because they think they're ready for a straitjacket. When in fact, all it is, is um, part of the healing that they've got to go through. Well, can we shift to that then? What inspired you after, you know, breaking away yourself, you then created this cult information center. Uh, when did that happen? And, and what led you down that path? Because you're in England now versus Canada. And That's right. That's right. Um, I've been brought up in a farming community in the north of, uh, of Britain. And uh, we had a, pretty simple attitude to things that were wrong if it's wrong you expose it you tell someone else and so i just had a an overwhelming desire to warn other people and i started in canada um coma uh, which was a charity and coma stood for council on mind abuse everybody remembered coma couldn't remember what it stood for <laughs> and, and um this when I was thinking along these lines in the first month or two of my recovery, the world was hit with the tragedy in in Johnstown, Guyana. You know, I got out in October, and the Guyana um, mass death occurred in October of uh, of seventy uh, seventy eight, and. Um, I remember seeing the pictures on Newsweek and all the other major magazines of the dead bodies. And I thought, you know, I could have been one of those. And the media started talking about it and said, is this a problem that Canadians should be aware of and concerned about? And I put mm. my hand up and said, yes, it is. And got my first interview with CHFIFM. I even remember the name of the station. <laughs> and once I did that interview, everybody wanted to interview me then. And um, as time went by, um, I, I, I got my job back 
because I hadn't served my notice and my boss was worried about me and hadn't actually filed my um, resignation with head office. And so she said, oh, you want this back? And she tore up the resignation and gave it back to me. She was very understanding. And uh, so I carried on working, but also in my free time working on setting up this, this charity. And um, in June the following year, um, I started working full time for the charity, which again was Coma Council on Mind Abuse. And we got a lot more media coverage, but we also got a lot of flack. The flack started to come to us from the cults. Uh, we were getting threats and all kinds of things. And um, that persisted for a long time. And after running it for eight years, um, I'd got married by then, and I had a desire to uh, be nearer to my extended family in the UK mm. and have my children near to their aunts and uncles and grandparents and so on. And so uh, we came back to the UK. And so I carried on the work here by setting up the Cult Information Centre, which is an educational charity. Okay. Now, I've spoken with um, Rick Allen Ross, who also yep. is very much against cults, and I imagine you've corresponded with him to some degree. Um, um, he came along after me, and um, uh, I've not really communicated much with him, but I see him as a, a good ally in the field, definitely. Okay. He has run into, shall we say, the uh, power of some of the cults. Um, one of which uh, we'll just say Scientology because everybody knows they're out there. There's arguments whether they're a cult or religion. That's something being um, argued in the press. But almost everyone would agree that they have very deep pockets and very well-paid lawyers. Is that something that you've had to cope with over time is um, different I'll say organizations. You were telling me earlier that you can't use the word cult in England because there are specific laws and that could be, I guess, considered libelous or slanderous. Yeah, I mean, I, I, can, I can use any word I want, but it's not deemed to be prudent to open the door to all kinds of litigation. And so I'm just careful. Um, however, um, I remember once being asked to give a, a lecture at Guelph University. Guelph is in Ontario, Canada. Mm -hmm. um can't remember how far it is from toronto but probably 50 miles something like that and I, I went to to give a lecture there on the general phenomenon and then in the question time um they had a lot of questions about a specific group and um, i answered those questions to the best of my ability and i actually was told ahead of time that those sorts of questions may come up and i took along someone else with me who um had even more expertise on that one group so we fielded questions, and afterwards, the local paper wrote an article about it. I didn't know there was a journalist there. And the journalist misquoted me, mm. and I got sued for what the journalist wrote. And I was sued for 13 and a half years for something then that I'd never said. And when I stood firm and fought it, when I lived in Canada, the group backed off. Mm -hmm. And things were limping along very slowly, so much so that my uh, the law firm that was helping me at the time um, said that after 18 months, it had gone only as far as it would normally go in five or six months. They were dragging the heels so much. Mm -hmm. 
And then after 18 months, nothing happened for the next three years. So I thought it was a dead issue. And so did the law firm. And that coincided with my having a young family and wanted to come back to the UK. And so, you know, everybody wished me well and I came back to the UK. And what the group did was resurrect the action in my absence and put it through the courts when I couldn't defend myself. Mm. And uh, so that's, that's the way it went. Um, the law firm that was helping me was just giving token help. It was writing the odd letter. Mm. And um, they had me talking to one of their most junior lawyers that was fresh out of university. But uh, it was very kind of them to, to, to offer that kind of help. But they said, once you go to court, Ian, you, you're going to be on your own. Mm. Well, I never got that chance. And, I, uh, you know, in many ways, I wish I had had a chance to go to court. Uh, but I thought it was a dead issue. They t- took this opportunity of seeing me no longer able to do anything about it, put it through the courts and got a default judgment and bankrupted me in 1996. Wow. So that is the sort of thing that one can expect. And you also get um, various threats as well and smear campaigns. Um, you know, if you work in this field, you, you've you got to be prepared for all of that. Yeah, and that's one thing that I, I'll confess. Um, you're not easy to get a hold of. I had to go through a couple hoops to contact you and does anyone who is dealing with cults have to put their lives in such a a manner to where you're almost acting like a federal witness or something? Well, um, it's perhaps easier for, for you to get in touch with me when you're in the UK. And our hmm. charity is focused on the UK, okay. um, which is one of the reasons why I've got... Uh, no need normally to contact someone like Rick Ross uh, yeah. because he's dealing with the US and, and maybe Canada. He's dealing with North American groups. Um, but our phone number is on our website and, and people call us every day. So we're, okay. we're relatively easy to get a hold of uh, as an organization. And uh, most people expect to be able to get a hold of me very quickly that way. And, and they do. Okay. Fair enough. Um, what are you seeing uh, coming in, you know, without revealing any kind of identities or anything, what are some of the more recent cases that you're seeing or trends? Uh, I don't know if there are any major differences that could come under the heading of trends. Uh, for me, Cults have always worked in a particular way, and they still do. They've got 26 techniques of mind control available to them, and they use them. All that differs from one cult to another is the particular combination of those 26 techniques. So one group might use 23 of them, another might use 17, and that's what varies, Mm -hmm. along with the name of the group and the name of the leader, of course. But the same things are done to you in, in all of the cults, and they work. And they're most, they're most effective working on somebody who's got a healthy mind. They're often well-educated people. They're often uh, described as idealistic people. And they care about the state of the world. And they walk through the wrong door. Mm. Um, the safest people from cults seem to be the very seriously mentally ill. 
And, and that's not a quote that's originally from me. That's from the late Dr. John Clark Jr., who used to be the Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard. And he was a good ally in the field. And I had the pleasure of um, meeting him on several occasions, particularly when he came to the University of Toronto to give lectures. And, Could you define um, mentally ill on that? That the, the like somebody paranoid is less likely. How do you mean? I don't know that I'm qualified to uh, answer that one, but okay. that's the way Clark put it. He said, when you put pressure on the human mind mm-hmm. um, through the techniques that cults employ, then the mind can only take this pressure for so long, and then something has to happen. And I'll have to show it this way. So you're putting pressure on the human mind. And he said, your personality changes. And so your original personality is pushed out of gear, if you will, and a new personality is adopted. So Clark was talking about a a sudden drastic personality change. And so if Clark's right, we should see victims of cults change and become someone else. And we do. And that's what provokes families to call us every week. And Clark said, for someone to go through that change of personality, they have to have a mind that's flexible. And he said, a flexible mind is a healthy mind. An Mm. inflexible mind is sick. And so people that are very seriously mentally ill are much harder to recruit into cults. But he didn't go into the specifics of what he meant by very seriously mentally ill. Okay, so that's kind of ironic because I would say the general consensus would probably be the opposite that you know people well, who are that, quote weak minded are more susceptible versus what you're saying is healthy minded. That's why I'm bringing it up. You're exactly right, and this makes people much more vulnerable. So cults don't have to worry about trends and so on because the easiest people to recruit they've got degrees, they've got a good income, they've got this and that and the other. Um, they don't think it would ever happen to them. And they, they're they encouraged to just simply walk through this door for all kinds of good reasons, and it turns out to be the wrong door, and it closes psychologically behind them. So who would you feel are the easiest people to recruit? Now, you said that mentally ill are the, the most difficult. Who would be the easiest? Those who think they're um, not... I'm generalizing. Yeah, I'm generalizing here. Um, They usually come from economically advantaged family backgrounds. I'm I'm putting it that way to avoid saying middle to upper class. Um, No, 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 that's fine. um, There are people um, who've usually got a good education. Um, They are upwardly mobile, or they would be in the future, uh, if they're not at this point in time. Um, And... um, They are people who would like to make their community or themselves better or the world a better place. They care. And uh, the cult recruiter comes along, finds out what makes them tick, and then speaks to that and talks about, oh, you're you're a journalist. Well, this will help you to uh, be more creative. You're a painter. This will also help you to be a lot more uh, creative in in your your artwork. Um, Oh, you're... A nurse, this will improve your bedside manner. Whatever you want to hear. Uh, And so uh, the end justifies the means. They will lie to people just to get them to go through that door. That's very Um, interesting. That kind of mirrors almost, I don't know if you've read about the parallels 
between uh, different, um, we'll say, extremist groups like ISIS and the anarchists in America, let's say, around the turn of the 20th century, had a, have a similar profile in the upper middle to upper class, if you will, uh, often very well educated. And people will have a perception sometimes that the quote-unquote terrorists are really poor refugees living in camps, but quite often the very, very poor are too busy trying to just get by, get food, get other things, and they don't necessarily fall into cults necess- you know, that easily because they're just too busy trying to take care of their family or get something done, and they don't have the luxury of time to listen to a persuasive argument. Does that make sense? I think, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I remember when I was in Canada listening to a radio interview with a gentleman um, who was from uh, some kind of um, uh, uh, an African background. Mm-hmm. And he said, people like me, meaning people with his kind of job, he was um, um, in- involved in some kind of uh, labor-oriented job. And uh, he said, people like me don't get involved in cults because of TCB. And I thought, what's TCB? Is this a new drug he's found and it, it prevents you from getting involved in a cult? And he said, it's taking care of business. <laughs> he said, we have to struggle as black people in general. There are exceptions, obviously. Uh, Tiger Woods being one of them. Um, <laughs> To, to put bread on the table. We have to work so hard. And then he said, we don't have time for those whitey debating activities. <laughs> and that was the way he put it. And I thought, this guy makes a lot of sense. So if you've got the time to go to meetings to improve yourself or improve your community or the world, make sure you're going to the right me- meetings. Okay. And while we're on that, there's another um, type of cult uh, I think of it as at least culty, and that's um, MLMs or multi-level marketing. I don't know if you've dealt with that at all, but there are some very distinct behaviors with these groups that have pyramid schemes and all that that I feel resemble or at least rhyme with cults. You know, what is that saying? History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. People will go to a seminar over a weekend. All of a sudden, they're trying to get money from every relative. They start to lose family relations, things like that. Well, um, I was asked by two MLMs to try and help them and act as a consultant to show them where they were going wrong if they were going wrong. Mm. And one in particular had... um, very clearly got some problems. And the problems seem to emanate from one particular network um, representing that organization as opposed to a whole host of other networks. Mm. And so I tried to help them to sort out the problems with that particular network, and uh, they attempted to, to do that. And I got involved in it because another colleague in the field knew that I had quite a bit of knowledge about that particular group from my time in Canada, because it's um, an international group, but I'd come across it in Canada. And he'd been to their head office and he said, they're going to listen to us. I said, no, they're not. He said, yes, they are. And persuaded me finally to go along. And they did listen. 
Hmm. And so I acted as a consultant for them to show them why they were being criticized and why they were sometimes being compared with uh, cults. I believe that the comparison was wrong and it was bad. Um, uh, how do I best describe it? Um, they were involved in, in bad practices in the workplace. Mm. At least that particular network was. And for me, there's a big difference between some inappropriate business practices and what cults are doing. Uh, there was a lot of rah, rah, rah at the meetings um, before you even knew what was going on. Oh, you've got to praise this and clap. He's just come on. Oh, yeah, this isn't. You think, what, what, what's going on here? And there were quite often claims made about the kind of income you could make that were not realistic at all. Mm-hmm. But I never, ever saw what I would constitute as mind control. On the other hand, I believe you're completely right because there are MLMs out there that are operating as cults. And so it's a case of which MLM are we talking about? And so, yes, some of them will get into the whole sphere of using full-blown mind control, others bad business practices. Okay. Well, to wrap up, I have one very loaded question. Okay. If I am interested in a group, whatever it is, and I walk into a meeting, what should I watch out for that should trigger me to say, get out now? I would have checked it out as much as possible before going to that meeting if I was you. Uh, I would Google it, see what comes up there. There's a a lot of information. I mean, you've mentioned Rick Ross. He has a great website full of information about a whole host of groups in North America and elsewhere. It's marvelous. So why not check it out online, see what what's available there, and then go along to that meeting with lots and lots and lots of questions. And ask these questions, and a cult won't want to answer them. And if there is so no info? They, sorry? And if there is no info? about them online the if there is no info online then i would contact people in our field first okay. uh, and do as much homework as you can uh, people in our field compile uh lists of organizations about which concerns have been expressed and they can be very useful in helping people to do their homework uh, we do that all the time here and uh, rick ross and uh, steve hassan and various other people in north america would do the same but um, it really comes down to asking questions. And if you're getting perhaps warm and fuzzy answers rather than anything with, that, that's got some clarity to it, then I, I would stay away until you know for sure that this group is okay. And check it out with as many different sources as you can. If it claims to be a religious group, check it out with the religious community in the area. If it claims to be, uh, we talk about religious cults and therapy cults. If it claims to be offering therapy, what do the other therapists in the uh, area say about it? What does the mental health community say in general about it? So I would just check as much as possible and just don't accept that what you're being told at that first meeting is true. Would you recommend a cooling off period if you have any kind of twinge at all? Like just... 
before you do anything, just go home and sleep on it. Well, you've said something, again, interesting that you said twinge. If you mean a gut feeling that there might be something off, mm-hmm. I, would, I would really take that very, very seriously. A lot of people have had gut feelings and haven't acted on them and have finished up in very serious trouble in cults. So if you have a twinge, if you have a gut feeling, I, I would definitely stay away and have that cooling off period, as you put it, until you know more. And if it checks out in the end and you were wrong and the group's okay, fine. Okay, well, perfect. Now, on this note, I have a um, live stream that I have. And, well, you're in the UK, so it might be trickier to figure out the timing. On it, I have um, audience members where they can write in the chat and ask questions. I was wondering if you might be up for doing that. And then, you know, if people themselves are having problems, you might be able to answer. Or We're happy them... to try and help anytime. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. And until then, you're at cultinformation.org.uk? Yes, with the triple W's in front. Oh, fantastic. And Ian, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Eric. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. I did not grow up with very much money. Money's energy. Money is something that really scares me. You had about 60 grand in debt. Money isn't the answer. Somebody should just give me a lot of money. My dream was to be the WWE wrestler, but you realize that your dreams change over the years. Money is a tool. It's a key to a gate. And at the other side of the gate is the things that you really want to do with your life. It's the things that matter most to you. It's pursuing those values that make you ultimately happy. Listen to Inspired Money at inspiredmoney.fm. Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T, which is a small business and marketing podcast. Each week, I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate, entertain, and inspire you. Check it out. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can go to my website, TysonFranklin.com.